in the beginning mountains are mountains mountains are mountains and mountains are mountains and streams are streams and trees are trees mountains are mountains or trees are trees and in the middle mountains are no longer mountains and trees are no longer trees and in the end mountains are mountains and trees are trees Another way of talking about this is I wanted to talk about the Dhamma of dishwashing. So, you know, in a, in, a, in a path of inquiry, when we start looking at what is going on in our minds and the worlds and all the rest of that, you know, we start with a mountain that looks like a mountain and a tree looks like a tree and that's the way we normally are used to relating to things. And then when we sharpen the magnifying glass, when our focus of concentration gets stronger, when our inquiry allows us to be able to look at things and take them apart, when we be able to see the way we fabricate things, the way our mind creates impressions of things and puts those impressions onto the things that we experience, then after a little while, then the mountain ceases to be a mountain and the tree ceases to be a tree. We come into a whole new way of relating with the ordinary things of our life. And in that whole new way of relating to the ordinary things of our life, there's a lot more space that we can experience and a lot more potential for freedom, for kindness, for compassion, for ourselves, and for everybody that we have in contact with. Because we can see the kind of way that stuff just gets triggered and activated and the way we can grab hold of it and bash ourselves with it and, and recognize that all of this is kind of like a play in the grand scheme of the universe dancing, you know? It doesn't have a kind of absolute ultimate meaning ascribed to it, you know? It's like the Mahabharata of the mind being enacted continuously. You know, there's dramas and there's scenarios and there's love stories and there's tragedies and there's comedies and it's just constantly going on and it's inside of my own mind and it happens every day, every minute, every hour of living, you know. 
And as we deconstruct some of that and see that this is actually the fabrication of the way I am thinking about things and and the associations and the perceptions that I have related to things, it doesn't exist in the thing itself. Then you can sit back and go, wow. (laughs) This is quite something, really. And in this quite something, really, you know, there can be a whole new way of showing up and being with the kinds of stuff that we normally experience. Not taking things so seriously, not getting so freaked out, not getting so depressed, or necessarily even so excited. Not because we've got a a blanket of gloom that's kind of stuck on top of us, or like, you know, sour grapes that we've got plastered all over us, but because there's more clarity of seeing, you know, how this whole thing is happening, and then more choice about the kinds of places where we really do want to engage and interact and play. So the play is coming from choice rather than from kind of being grabbed by the nose and dragged around. Yeah. And it is quite an inquiry, I have to agree, you know. I've been doing this for a while, and I get caught up, you know, this is what happens. You know, I get confused, I get agitated, I get anxious, and it takes a while for me to unpack what's happening and be able to figure out what I need to do in order to have a right response and to respond to the whole self, myself, and to everybody else with compassion. So it's not, you know, I have never found a magic wand in any of this. You know, there's no voop voop and the thing disappears and the whole thing is sorted and all of a sudden there's clarity and kindness and compassion. There's no more confusion and we don't experience anything arising that knocks us off balance. I haven't experienced that, you know. And I have known quite a few people who've been practicing for a long time, and most of them that I know haven't experienced that either. So this is kind of like, you know, slow road, you know, a gentle process of inquiry and mind training and cultivation so that we can begin to get some leverage on some of the things that we experience that we take to be so real and question them, you know, look and see, is this really what's going on? Is there another way of relating to it? And then as we do this more and more, as we have more sense of the choices, the genuine choices that are present in our, in our life about how we place our attention, the kinds of things that we value, the kinds of things that we believe in, then more space opens up. And more space opens up, more joy opens up, more genuine play opens up. Because all of life then becomes a spontaneous ability to engage with what's going on, you know? You know, to just really show up and be present and, and inquire and, and to lis- listen to some, what somebody has to say and to really feel the fullness of who they are as they're speaking. Or to notice oneself when, when there's hurt or there's sadness or there's a sense of confusion. To be totally present for that not in a self-indulgent way, but in a way that's utterly attentive and responsive and respectful to one's own unfolding process. You know, we're not hiding or we're not covering. A couple, I don't know when it was, last week, I I don't track time very well, 
somebody po posted this video, a YouTube video, and the, I can't remember his name because I'm not good with those things either. And it was, are you, uh, are you a spiritual badass? <laughs> and I watched it, and it was brilliant, <laughs> absolutely brilliant, you know. Because what he was talking about is being a badass, a spiritual badass, is somebody who's willing to show up. You know, not run, you know, not shoot up, you know, but show up. Mm. And how courageous is it to actually show up for some of the places where we feel scared? You know, how difficult is it to say, I'm sorry, or I love you, or I hurt? You know, and how important it is to actually be able to show up for those kinds of things and be able to do that. You know, anyway, it's fabulous YouTube. I thought it was brilliant. I posted it to the Awakening Truth Facebook group. You know, I said there is some vernacular in here, but it's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> So when we have more capacity to show up, when we have more capacity to unravel some of the places where we get tangled up into pretzels, where you know our world just collapses, or we're in a black box and we have no idea what's actually happened, but we feel terrible, you know, and just to hold the space with that until it begins to unravel and becomes clear then there's more sense of my own experience of resting in my own skin, you know? It's like, yeah, I know this territory. It's like, you know, there have been so many times when I have been knocked off balance that I know that if I hold still with it long enough, it'll come right, you know? I can't tell you when, and I cannot predict how, but I have confidence that it will, you know? You know, so the spiritual path, the process of inquiry, the mind training that all of this is designed to do is to give us tools so that we begin to start seeing the mountain no longer as a mountain and the tree no longer as a tree. We begin to start unraveling the normal habits and perceptions that we put on things and start looking at things in a different way. And coming with that is more peacefulness, more joy, a lot more compassion. And it has to start here. We have got to stop trashing ourselves and berating ourselves and criticizing ourselves and slandering ourselves and beating ourselves up because we're not living this ideal image of who we expect and think we should be. We have got to start here with bringing some care and some compassion and some respect. And as we begin to get a feeling for what it is to be human and the kind of extraordinariness that this brings, you know, the talents that we have, the strengths that we have, as well as the places that we're vulnerable and fragile, then we have a capacity to see that in others as well. When somebody really messes up, you know, 
it's usually because they were totally out of sorts in some way or another. You know? So when we understand in ourselves what happens and how it is and how we can grab hold of the wrong stick and beat ourselves or beat somebody else with it, then we have some more appreciation for how other people can do the same thing. And it means that our living together is more possible to forgive. Because we understand, we know where this stuff is coming from. So then we emerge into a space where then trees then become trees and mountains become mountains. And the world then is a kind of ordinary world, but it's looked at from another perspective. And that's where the Dhamma of dishwashing comes in, you know? It's like, you know, yeah, this is about enlightenment. But what enlightenment means is that you can wash the dishes, you can clean the toilet, you can sleep the floor, you can change the sheets, you can do the laundry, you can make dinner. You could go shopping. It means that we can bring this quality of awakeness, this quality of lack of confusion, this quality of presence, of interest, of curiosity, into everything that we're doing, even taking out the garbage. You know? So it's not that we have an idea of activities that are wholly that are the only ones that we're allowed to engage in. It's that we bring this quality of a mind that is open and interested and awake and able to show up into everything that we're doing, all parts of our life. Now, one of the things in a monastery that's really lovely, I've got a hermitage, so it's a little bit tiny, but in a monastery, the people really have a feeling that it's their place. You know, it's their place. The doors are open, they're not locked, and people are welcome to come, and it's their place. When you have a place, you know, the grounds need to be swept, and the garden needs to be gardened, and the office needs to be tended to, and the books need to be shelved. You know, the dishes need to be washed, the garbage needs to be taken out, and that's what everybody does. And so it's not just that people come in the door and they expect only to meditate. They know that in a monastery they have to take care of the place. And so what's really lovely is is that there is a place where meditation instruction is given and mind training is offered, but there's a context where it is applied and dishes have to be washed. The garbage has to be taken out. We have to have meetings and talk about things and figure out how we want to organize stuff. We've got workplace, you know. So it has a context where things are normalized. And in regular meditation retreats or in centers in this country, it's abstracted, you know? So people think about meditation as the thing that you do on the cushion when you're silent and your legs are crossed, you know? So if somebody comes in and you say, shut up, leave me alone, I'm meditating. <laughs> I'm practicing compassion, leave me alone. <laughs> and in a monastery we get interrupted all the time and we have to deal with our irritation and our aggravation all the time and we have to see that the meditation practice is not usually what we think it should be it is what is arising in the present moment that is what the meditation practice is 
And there are times of the day when we sit on the cushion, and there are times of the day when we walk, and there's times of the day when we do the dishes, and there's times of the day when we take out the trash, and there's times of the day where we listen to each other, and we speak to each other, and we find out what's really going on for each other. And this is all part of our life. This is all the kind of practice that we are working with. Now, when I was at Amravati Monastery in England, I was part of organizing the temple opening. Now, the story about Amravati, you know, what happened was, is, is that in 1950, there was a group of people who gathered together and they created the English Sangha Trust, and it was their intention to invite monks to come and be a presence in England because they understood the value of monastics and they wanted them there. And over number of years, a number of monks came and, I mean, to be a monk in a foreign country without a cohesive lay support is incredibly challenging. So they would get homesick, or they'd fall in love, or they you know, they would have meltdowns or all the things that would happen. Anyway, they would leave and they'd run back to Thailand, or they'd disrobe or they'd fall in love and get married, or all the things that would happen, but there was nobody that stayed. And then when Ajahn Sumedho came, and they asked him to stay. You know, the training that he had and the presence of the other monastics who supported him, it worked. And so from nothing grew all of these different monasteries. And Amravati was the like the mother monastery of all the monasteries in Europe. And it was quite big and had a lot of grounds and the capacity to have many people stay and and, and it had its own separate retreat center and all the rest of that. So, because in the past when we were doing retreats, we would rent a venue and people would come to that venue and all of the rest of that. But we decided, actually when they decided to get over but it was before I came, they decided that they wanted to have a retreat center on the facility of the monastery itself so that the retreats could be on the same property. Okay? So, I mean, the physical acreage wasn't enormous. It was about 34 acres. Yeah, but but the 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 number of buildings are like forty buildings, you know, and we could have several hundred people there at a time, right? So it was always the idea from the very beginning that they wanted to build a temple, and 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 then after a while, you know, because the monks and the nuns, we used to do everything. We you know the first thing that happened when they moved into Amravati was they outfitted the workshop because we used to build and fix and do everything. We we made our robes, we made our own sandals, we fixed the buildings, we did everything. And then as 10, 10, 15 years came on and we all got older and we were tired from working 15, 18 hours a day, we had a tantrum and we said, no, if you want to build a temple, you have to get enough money to hire people. We're tired of working 18 hours a day doing these things. You know, we want to practice and meditate and we want to study and we want to develop our own communities. We don't want to be working in a building site, you know. So we put our foot down and had a tantrum and said, this is the deal. If you want a temple, raise the money to hire people to build it. So in Asia, it's considered incredibly auspicious to support a monastery. Okay? And in Asia, it's considered especially auspicious to support a monastery in the West. And because Ajahn Chah was the meditation master and is an absolutely renowned and beloved, highly respected meditation master, then this is the pinnacle of, like, absolute great. So they didn't have a problem raising the money. They raised the money to build a spectacular temple. 
So we had a spectacular temple. And, and to have a spectacular temple, you have to have a party, you know. So we had a big party. And so we invited, I don't know, how many monks and nuns there were there? Probably two or three hundred monks, nuns there. There were about 3,000 people that came. Okay. Now, for us, it's like, this is a big deal, you know? So we planned it for a year, and we got all kinds of preparations made, and you have to have, oh, all kinds of, you know, you've got to have security, you've got to figure out what happens if people freak out, you need to have health people, I mean, all kinds of stuff there. And so we invited monks and nuns from all over the place. Now, Ajahn Pasano is the abbot of a Bayagiri monastery in Northern California, and he's Canadian. And he was the abbot of the monastery in Thailand for 17 or 18 years or 20 years, a long time, okay? And he knows about monasteries and how they work. He knows, and he's really good at training monks, okay? So everybody from that monastery, or a whole bunch of them, came from California to England, they get off the bus or the car or whatever. They put on their work robes. They roll up their sleeves and they just get stuck in. It's like their idea of party is to do whatever is needed to be done right now in order to make this work. They totally knew that. Okay? All of them. They get out of the car. They put on their work jackets and they say, what can we do to help? Okay? And it's like this is the result of good training. You know? That you just show up and do whatever is needed, no matter what is the situation. You know, they've been on a flight for 10 hours. Didn't matter. Okay. Ajahn Pasano is like a rock star in Thailand. Right? He's a big deal dude. There were too many people to be sitting on the platform in the temple because there were too many. So he was squished in a corner somewhere. He was couldn't see anything. He was on the floor. He was like not a problem. If this is what needs to happen in order to serve, this is where I'll be. No issue. Zero. You know? So, the training in the mind is not to turn us into princesses where we have to be like china dolls on a shelf where we have special treatment and we have to be cared for so that nobody, if you poke us too hard, we shatter. It's the opposite. Is to do whatever needs to be done in the circumstances. Even if you are a rock star and a big shot, roll up your sleeves and get stuck in. You know, that's the job. That's what needs to happen. And the miracle is, I mean, none of us had ever been involved in anything like that before, is is that it worked. I mean, certainly there were a few rough edges and a couple of tears on a few occasions, but we managed to get through it. And mostly it was actually quite extraordinary. It was a beautiful event. It was just amazing. But it happens because there are a large number of people who understand that that is actually what's needed, is to show up and to do what is needed in the present moment, right? So, like, all right, so we have a training, and this training takes us from ordinary appearances into dismantling ordinary appearances and seeing things in a totally new way. And then from this totally new way, we come back to ordinary appearances. The dishes need washed, wash them. The floor needs swept, sweep it. People need help shoveling, shovel. 
The trash needs to be moved, move it. The carpet needs to be laid, lay it. The chairs need to be shifted, shift them. Show up and be present and available <coughs> to do what is needed. I spent some time at uh, Titanath Hans Monastery in Southern California, Deer Park. And, you know, he's a really quite remarkable teacher. I really, I like his teaching. I like his communities. He has a very uh, clear understanding that there's a lot of innovation that is needed. And that resonates very strongly with my own understanding about how to take these ancient traditions and help them come into a modern world and make sense. And so as a part of the practice that they had set up, you know, they would have videotapes of him giving Tama talks to his community in, in Plum Village in France. And he likes to speak with a, bl- with a blackboard or a whiteboard with erasers. All he needed to do was watch him erase the eraser to get a complete understanding of what it was to live as an embodied expression of peace, of kindness, of compassion. Okay? Just erase the, like, there's no rush with care, with integrity, with presence in his body. Just watching him erase the whiteboard. It was a really clear teaching about how do we practice. So we have it all. We've got the ordinary, we've got incredibly rich teachings that help us look at the nature of reality and the nature of our minds and how we construct things so that we can have another way of relating to all of it. And then it comes back into very simple, What needs to be done? And how can I show up for that? So the Dhamma of dishwashing is not a lesser Dhamma. And that's helpful, you know, because like, you know, how many hours can we carve out for formal meditation practice? And how often can we go on retreats? And how often do we meet together with other people who are practitioners? It's not as if we need to trivialize or diminish any of that. But if we understand that our practice is not limited to those activities then we can begin to see the richness of our interest in waking up, beginning to start emerging into all of the different corners of our life. You know? Beautiful. Beautiful. So I'd like to end here and have us break for a cup of tea. 
and then um, we can regather and have a conversation when we're ready. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.